is Yuda Cohen, British Zone Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm sitting here in Jerusalem with an old friend of mine, author Zev Golan of Stern, The Man and His Gang. Uh, this book is probably about seven, eight years old, uh, but still relevant. It's probably one of the most authoritative books on the fighters for the freedom of Israel available in the English language. Zev, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So uh, I guess since I'm bringing you on as the author of Stern, the Man and His Gang, it might be appropriate to speak about the Stern Gang, to speak about the Lechi Underground, the Lechamecha Rut Yisrael, the fighters for the freedom of Israel. I guess my first question would be, what separated, in your mind, the Lechi from the other Jewish underground movements that existed in Palestine before the State of Israel was established? The other uh, movements that were working for Zionism were basically either political Zionists or practical Zionists. The political Zionists believe that you need grand declarations by politicians in states around the world to recognize our claims to the land of Israel. And the practical Zionists believe that you need to put another cow down and build another hut, and that's how you'll conquer the land. Mm-hmm. The, um, the Stern Group but rejected both those views, and so it was completely new. Well, I think the Stern Group also rejected the term Zionism. I mean, certainly Eliel Betsuri did at his trial in Cairo, and, and for sure Nathaniel and Moore in his letter. To, we recently discovered in Shabtai Ben Dov's writings a letter that Yellen Moore had written to Eldad explaining all the reasons why Lechi is not a Zionist movement. And of course, it's a semantic question because Zionism in the minds of a lot of the Lechi fighters was Chaim Weizmann, that is Zionism, and we are an indigenous people's liberation movement. I think that was kind of the distinction that they were making. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, Eldad would certainly have called himself a Zionist. Uh, the point was, as you just said, to differentiate uh, yourself uh, from the establishment Zionism. And so they did that by calling themselves revolutionaries, mm-hmm. uh, which indeed they were. And that was what made them unique. Uh, the, the Irgun uh, in the late 30s became military Zionism under Begin's direction, under his uh, ideas in Poland, and then later when he got here, um, they became military Zionists. And you would say military Zionism is kind of a blend of whatever Lechi was and Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionism. Yeah. Like Begin wasn't a revisionist really. He was something that was a little bit between the two camps. Well, you know, Begin sort of, uh, one, one could say that he redefined, he revised revisionism uh-huh. in the sense that uh, Jabotinsky was, uh, was not uh, leading in that direction, even though Begin uh, imagined that he was or, or wanted him to. But uh, Jabotinsky had to be almost pulled against his will into. The, After uh, his death? No. Uh, well, certainly, posthumously, yes. But even in the late 30s, he had to be pulled against his will uh, towards um, what the Irgun was doing in, in Eretz Israel in Palestine and fighting back against the Arabs. Uh, he was somebody who was a, much more of a humanist, much more of a, of a liberal in the, in the classic sense. And uh, to, to think of, uh, of, of uh, civilians being killed by your attack, so to speak, was was something that was very hard for him to swallow. Right, but even harder to swallow was the idea of fighting the British Empire. Meaning, like, Jabotinsky, until his death, was opposed to any armed struggle against England. As uh, somebody who who loved the liberal tradition uh, and Western thought, uh, indeed, he was committed uh, to uh, England, and especially during the beginning of uh, World War II, uh, with uh, England uh, being basically alone against 
the Germans, uh, he put even more store in, in the British. Uh, when he finally supported the Uyghurs, military quote-unquote actions, they weren't necessarily what we would call military, but when he, when he supported their uh, activist response to uh, Arab attacks on, on Jews here, um, he certainly didn't um, include the British as targets. And that, in fact, was one of the, the major, if I can get into the, uh, the um, details of the uh, politics in the Irgun, the commander of the Irgun in the mid-30s was Avraham Tahomi, who was actually the founder of the Irgun. He was also a, a very revolutionary type and also a very military type. Now, I met Tahomi. He was, when I met him, he was 88 years old, and I felt like I should salute because he was the very epitome of a general, even though he had not been in a fighting position in, in maybe five decades. Um, the main difference he had with Jabotinsky was he said, you know, if you're going to attack the Arabs because they're attacking us, you have to understand that this is, in, a sense, in essence, an attack on the British because the British are in charge here. They're supposed to be policing the country. If you're fighting the Arabs, it's going to lead to a conflict with the British. Now, if you want to do that, I'm in. But if you don't want to do that, you need to know where it's going. And for Jabotinsky, this was just, you know, too much. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Tohomi left the Irgun and went back to the Haganah because he'd rather have an army that at least could function as an army. Um, but that gets us he, away he, from... He, the, saw, he saw revisionism as a little too wishy-washy. No, he was willing to go along with revisionism as long as a revisionism would... Um, would, make the, would take the final step. So maybe you're right. Maybe a little wishy-washy is the, is the word. But he, was, he didn't want a party, Tahomi we're talking about now, didn't want a party to run the army that was going to liberate the land of Israel. He didn't want the labor movement to run the Haganah, and they were doing that. So he left the Haganah and created the Irgun. When in the late 30s, Jabotinsky essentially took over the Irgun, uh, or the revisionists uh, took over the Irgun, uh, he said, this is, you know, deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. And so he left the Irgun and went back to the Haganah because the Histadrut's influence in the Haganah was, was uh, less uh, obvious at the time, and he felt he might be able to work with him. In the end, he couldn't. Right, and he never found his way to Lehi. No, definitely not. Right, he considered, he took, he, it's an interesting point, if I may add, uh, in one of his rear comments about Lehi, he, he worked closely with Stern. He, in, and this is perhaps one needs to take a step back and, and explain that he created the Ugun in 31, emerged with a group of Beitarim, and, and that's the Ugun that we know. Um, he went to Italy to bring Stern back, where Stern was studying in Florence, um, uh, Romance uh, languages and, and uh, Greek and Roman history. And uh, he, he went to Italy to essentially draft Stern as his aide-de-camp, as commander of the Irgun. And so Stern gave up essentially his studies and his academic future and began smuggling uh, weapons and guns to the Irgun and uh, would, would come back to Eretisel as much as possible to help Tomi out here. And then he was sent to Poland to arrange the shipment of arms and the smuggling of guns from Poland and to set up other things in Poland. So, but, but it's interesting that in retrospect, and this goes back to your first question, <coughs> years later, looking back on Stern, who was his top man, who was basically the people who were running the Irgun in the mid-30s were Tahomi and Stern. 
I mean, you know, Raziel came. Raziel, right. Raziel came along and became the commander at some point. But the people who were doing most of the work in the early 30s was Stern and Tahomey. Stern was the, you know, was not the ideologue. He was the footman at the time for Tahomey, who was running everything. But looking back years later, Tahomey's description of Stern in one word was he's an anar- he was an anarchist. And that comes back to your original question, I think, because what, among the many things that made Lehi unique was they were not beholden to a political party that had political interests. Their interest was a revolution to get the British out and to create a Jewish state, and they didn't want a political party telling them what to do. They wanted to tell the political party what needed to be done for the Hebrew Revolution. Right, and I, I take even beyond that, I don't, I don't think they were merely looking for a Jewish state. I think they were looking for a state that would be the fulfillment of Jewish aspirations for many centuries. Like they were looking to essentially achieve that which we say in the Tefillot three times a day, that we should have Malchut Israel that we should have uh, a system of justice uh, that like, reflects our identity and our values and uh, not just like the British mandate with a Hebrew flag over it. Without a doubt, you're 100% correct. And Stern put into the ideology and to the principles of the movement that he formulated at the very beginning um, the idea that this was a liberation movement that would last for using perhaps... Uh, uh, I don't know whether this was his word, but last for eternity. I mean, it would never end. The fight for Jewish liberation, the fight for the principles that you've just enumerated and a few others, w- was going to be ongoing. And he, a permanent revolution. Yes, and he viewed, without a doubt, and he viewed Lehi as the group that would do that, mm-hmm. the chosen among the chosen. And uh, so... Well, that, that's not unique to his generation, meaning throughout Israel's history, I mean, throughout the history of the children of Israel, we have almost always had our story advanced by a radical minority that just sees what others can't and is willing to do what others won't. Yes. That seems to be the story of the children of Israel. From, the, Bi- from the Bible and th- all throughout Jewish history mm-hmm. and un- until the liberation movements of, of the last century. Right. So I've often like put it, you know, it depends where I'm teaching, but in, in more, let's say, mystical terms, if we look at the nation of Israel is kind of like one giant spiritual organism that shines into this world through millions of bodies in space and time called Jews, there's like this unique shade of that collective soul that seems to be this radical minority that, that always agitates to advance the mission of the Hebrew nation. It seems to be our fate, and it, it perhaps is, is unfortunate. I don't know, it's, you know, sometimes it's difficult to call a fact unfortunate. A fact is a fact. Uh, but it is perhaps unfortunate that, uh, that that is the case because the people who do that are usually vilified and, uh, at the time, certainly, uh, and only in retrospect are they um, recognized for being what uh, uh, the poet uh, Schne- Zalman Schneier called a bridge uh, that, we, that the rest of us walk on. Yeah. No, no, it's interesting. I've often challenged my students to name you know, like six heroes of Israel's history from biblical times till today, that everybody today would accept as like a hero that's universally accepted among the Haredim, among the Reform, that we all say, you know, Mordechai Hayudi is a hero, Yudah Maccabee is a hero, Moshe Rabbeinu is a hero. Can you name six of these characters who we all accept as heroes today who were accepted during their lifetime, especially early in their careers, as leaders of the nation? 
Even David, who we, till this day, thousands of years later, remember as the ideal Hebrew leader, was considered just, you know, this leader of this radical fringe group in the time of Shaul. And that seems to be our history over and over. I mean, our history is obviously like, uh, I don't know if it's cyclical or like a spiral, but it, it seems to repeat itself, the themes. And I think you bring that out very... Well, I don't know if it's fair to say you bring it out, but you translated a book into English that brings it out very well, The First Tithe by Professor Yisrael Aldad, uh, who was the ideological leader of Lehi after Stern's assassination. You know, it, it's very clear, I think, from reading The First Tithe that almost every character he's speaking about is representing more than that specific character. He's representing a force that kind of shines into our people's story over and over and over again in our existence. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, go back, you know, one of the people you mentioned, not, but you could say it about all the people you mentioned, Moses. Mm-hmm. I mean, Moses, you know, had to flee Egypt because the Jews told the Egyptians that there was this, you know, liberator. guy running around, exactly, a liberator coming. And then it, it happened with the other people, too. I mean, the, all of the people who you mentioned who became our leaders, Mordechai Yehudi, how does the book of Esther end? That he's uh, supported by most of his brothers. Well, what about the rest of them? He just saved everyone. And yet he had to fight his own brothers. And this was certainly the case with, uh, with Stern and, and his group because uh, in one of his uh, poems, uh, he talks about how every... Uh, Every door conceals a, a, a man who's going to inform on them. Behind every tree is a flashlight waiting to be shown in their faces. And even the children walk around with daggers to stab them in the back because the Jews of Tel Aviv are not supporting his effort to get the British out and create a Jewish state. Right, they couldn't even understand what he's talking about. Yeah, like indeed. He was so ahead of his time, this idea of fighting. I, I mean, that's maybe one of the reasons why I take this claim. I think what Yair carried with them, and I'm not making a... This isn't necessarily a statement about Yeir's own political orientation, but I think because his background, because he did grow up at a certain point of his life, he was in a Leninist youth movement in the Soviet Union, he had the tools to be able to analyze a political situation that most of his peers, including David Raziel, didn't have. Meaning David Raziel, in my mind, is like the prototype of the soldier from Mechinat Eli. You know, the, the guys who come out of Atzmona and Eli, who are these like super soldiers, they met, you know, influenced by the same ideology that animated David Raziel, right? Yes, these yes, are, yes. These yes. are very much, yes. and they're great soldiers. And I think David Raziel was also like considered the, he was like the Hebrew soldier. But I think what was lacking was a political sophistication or an awareness of how certain forces, let's say, can influence events. And, uh, you know, once when I was speaking uh, to Aryeh Eldad, Yisrael Eldad's son, he made a comment to me once. He said that every bullet fired by Lehi, every wall proclamation, every bomb that exploded, was uniquely designed. They weren't just, you know, mindless, you know, violent thugs. The, every single action, every word, every proclamation was done with an awareness of how the British would react, how the Arab world would react, how the Soviets would react, how the world media would react, how the Jewish community would react. And they did ultimately succeed. I mean, this is now me, not Aryeh. They did ultimately succeed in dragging the Etzel and the, even the Palmach and the Haganah for a brief period of time behind them into a confrontation with Britain. Um, I would put a little reservation on what you just said, even though on the whole I agree with it. Uh, and that is that um, the Irgun was not fighting the British 
in the early 40s. They were not. But that is, and, and, and then they... Then no, they, no, they and were then also they, handing over Zionists yeah, to the British. Yeah, but um, they weren't only pulled in by uh, Lehi's uh, political analysis. No, no, they, no were, they were pulled in by the events that Lehi created. That, no, I think that I'd, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to, which, I'd like to sure, respectfully right. disagree. Okay, go ahead. Even though um, I don't, as I say, I don't disagree with the general gist of what you're saying, but on that point, I think that the main difference with the Urgun was that Begin showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Begin was in a Soviet jail uh, in the 40s, in the early 40s, when, um, or a labor camp, in the early 40s, when um, uh, the Urgun was uh, cooperating with the British. And uh, when he got here and uh, took over shortly thereafter the Irgun and commanded the Irgun, the Irgun changed completely. And it's really impossible to view the Irgun uh, before Begin uh, and the Irgun after Begin as the same Irgun. Okay. Uh, some of the people were the same. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, and, and he also had, you know, one of the people I'm, you may have met, uh, Samuel Katz, Shmuel Katz. Sure. You know, I mean, Katz was in England at, at some point and he was. He was analyzing what was going on in England and, and feeding Begin information about how every, as you just said about Lehi, how every word and every bullet and everything impacted public opinion overseas. And Begin, of course, had people in the States doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he was very, per, very adept at knowing what would sway public opinion and what were the right moves to make. Begin, Begin. yes, Begin. And um, so when Begin, basically he didn't waste any time. He took over the Urgun. In, well, he waited to be honorably discharged from from the, from, from the Polish army. army. Yes, but once he took the Irgun, the Irgun, you know, a couple months later, declared war on England. Mm-hmm. And they, they, despite the fact that their whole uh, justification for all of their activities until then was England is fighting World War Two and we have fighting the Germans and we have to let them fight. We can't stop them. That didn't stop Begin from well, essentially blowing up. Nineteen forty-four. Say there, no, I accept that, but nonetheless, it was a year and something before the mm-hmm. a year and almost a half before the war ended, mm-hmm. and yet the Irgun attacked. So let me ask you two questions. Then the first question is: Do you believe that had Begin showed up earlier? Had he shown up in Palestine in 1940 or 1941, do you think he would have declared a revolt then against the British, or do you think, or, or do you think that um, he, th- that he w- still would not have been able to declare a revolt until 1944? That's my first question. My second question is, do you think that Begin would have ever been able to declare a revolt had Lehi never existed? These are meaning com- had there already not been a few years of anti-colonial struggle taking place for Begin to kind of jump in and join, essentially. He had the bigger force. I mean, nobody denies that the Etzel uh, certainly, they fought. They were soldiers, meaning they fought to free our land. But I'm not sure if, I just don't see, based on what, what I've studied in my life, that the Etzel had it in them to really come to the conclusion that they have to fight Although, like we said, Begin was kind of like a, a hybrid, maybe, of, yes. a, of a sternist yes. and a revisionist Zionist. Yes. But I think that it, it's hard to imagine that they would have actually been the first to fight, especially at a, at a time. Remember, when Yair started fighting, the notion of fighting the British Empire was insane. It was not sane. Like, it, like, like Eldad talks about it in uh, 
the first tithe is trying to teach the nation grammar before they know the alphabet. Right. Like they just can't comprehend. What do you mean, fuck right. the British? Right. Like it's, right. it's nuts. It's, it's right. more crazy than trying to revive a dead language. Right. It's more crazy than trying to ingather a broken and scattered people back from the four corners of the world. Right. Like this was considered insane even by the people who agreed with Herzl and agreed with Ben Yehuda. And so could, in my mind, it's hard for me to see Begin as being capable of being the one to jump in the water, like Nachshon ben Aminadav, the way Yair did. Meaning Yair was the one who just went, and like you said, I think it's beautiful the way you put it, he made himself a bridge for the nation to walk on after his death. And I'm not sure if Begin was that, although of, of course, you know, we have to give credit where credit is due, and, and they did join the fight. I just don't know if they would have come to those political conclusions. You know, it's a completely hypothetical question. Right. So, um, I think that the biggest sticking point for me, um, the biggest problem which you raised, uh, is that uh, it's impossible for me to know whether Begin would have come to the conclusion that you should be fighting the British during the war that the British are fighting in Europe. And it's not at all clear to me that, that he would have come to that conclusion. But I will, however, quote in the opposite direction, Shamir, mm-hmm. who was, when he was asked uh, a very similar question, uh, responded that uh, if there had been no Begin, uh, there would have, there would not, the history would not have developed as it did. And if there had been no Lehi, it's not, it's not clear that that would have happened. In other words, to, to, to Shamir, Begin was the more important figure in creating the war against the British, even though he came in late. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to, to go back, Shamir said that, and to go back to what you said, had Begin come earlier, I, I do believe the war would have started earlier. Yeah, he would have done it, Begin, even while the Germans that I, the that I don't know, that I don't know. But if he had been here in, look, in 38, he was organizing Beitar in Poland. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, he was the, the, the great hope of the young Beitarim, and even Eldad, who certainly had his disagreements with Begin later because Begin was not, um, let's say, revolutionary enough for him, um, defended Begin when Begin talked about the need to liberate the homeland and right. fight for a Jew. No, for because a in 1938, Begin was speaking about fighting the British. Right. Well, he was, yeah. I mean, that, that was essentially the declaration he was making. Right, right. But there was no war at the time. There was no World War II. Right. So I mean, that's why I say I don't know what would have right. happened. So, so, but but I, I do think that if Begin had been here in 38, for instance, mm-hmm. which is not only hypothetical, but it's you know, obviously impossible, but if he had been here then, when the, he wasn't yet worried about fighting the Germans, I, I have no doubt that he would have moved the Irgun right. towards fighting the British. Well, I guess the question I have is whether Begin could have fought the British while the British were fighting the Germans. Uh, no way. Because that, that's something that I think only Yair was really, I don't know what the right word is, maybe liberated enough to, to be able to, to see the British as the enemy. Uh, well, he's... He saw the, the Germans, of course, as, as the so enemy, right. too, except a different kind of right. enemy. But not Oyev, meaning he, he saw the Germans as the persecutor. He saw the Germans as those who want to kill Jews, want to persecute Jews. Uh, of course, the opportunity existed to save Jews. It's obviously very controversial, but we should probably talk about it. Yair's overtures to the Germans to basically take the Jews that Hitler at that point wanted to expel from Europe, you know, before the Wannsee Conference. Right. So this was, as you, first of all, you know, Yair Stern was killed in February 42. Um, Which is a month and, after the Wannsee um, Conference. Right. And nobody knew yet about the Wannsee Conference, uh, uh, certainly not here. Uh, but even before that, um, Stern uh, had been successful in the 30s 
in negotiating with the anti-Semitic Polish government right. and getting the Polish government, which had no love of Jews, to give the Irgun, who Stern was representing at the time, uh, weapons, military training, to host members of the Irgun who were brought over from Palestine, from Eretz Israel, to study guerrilla tactics in Poland, uh, and had really was preparing to do even more for the, for the Jewish people, uh, on the assumption that indeed uh, there were, as the Polish people would have put it, there were too many Jews in Poland, and as Yair would have put it, there aren't enough Jews in Eretz Israel. And, so and too many Jews in Europe? In general, meaning that... Yeah, but he was negotiating with Poland. Ah, and, so, and so since he had this experience of successfully negotiating with the Polish government, which was anti-Semitic, to bring the, Pol- the, the Jews to Eretz Israel um, on the assumption that they would be fighting the British afterwards and creating their own state here. And he really was uh, received, I don't want to say royally, but was received as the, by the Polish government officials whom he met with was received as the leader of a state, even though the state didn't yet exist. But that's how he was perceived. That's how he talked. Uh, of course, it didn't hurt that he also spoke their language. Mm-hmm. He spoke a, an untold number of languages, being a rather brilliant man. But he spoke their language. He knew their poets by heart. He could meet with the Polish uh, uh, politicians and generals and quote their nationalist poets in justification of the Jewish national aims. So he was, he was very well received there, and he assumed that if the Poles wanted to get rid of their Jews and could send them to Palestine and give them guns to, to help them create a Jewish state, the Germans wanted to get rid of the Jews, they hated the Jews, maybe he should try there. And he was well aware, he, wasn't, he didn't have blinders on, he wasn't uh, unaware of the dangers of what he was doing politically. And he knew that he might fail, he knew that the Germans might not go along with this idea, and he knew that he might be vilified, as he was, by the Jews who lived in Eretz Israel as somebody who was, quote-unquote, cooperating with the Germans, which was certainly far from the truth. And he said to his own men, his own deputy, he said, listen, if it happens, which I don't expect, that the Germans actually win this war, and if it happens that they get to Palestine and they start fighting us, then I want you to call me a traitor and hang me in the public square. That's fine. And you'll go underground in Palestine and fight the Germans. Right now, the Germans aren't here. The British are here. And we need to get them out so we can have our country. Right. And, and the truth is, in World War II, the Allies and the Axis had their interests. The Jews were not a player. What Yair wanted was for the Jews to be a player, to have independence, to have our own country, our own army, and to, ha- and to be able to fight for our interests the way every other nation in that war was fighting for its interests. Yes. And, and the uh, way to do that is to expel the British, meaning that's the only way to make that happen, to free our country from foreign rule, and that foreign rule was England. Yes. But, but even after Begin, you know, going back to a point you made earlier, and Eldad points this out a lot as well, even once Begin became commander of the Etzel, the Irgun, um, they were still only fighting the oppressive regime. They weren't fighting the foreign regime in the way that Lehi was, meaning their language was not an anti-colonial language. Their language wasn't one of liberating our country from a ruler that has no right to be here. It was more about what England is doing wrong. And, and I think that is um, maybe the, the, what Begin takes from Jabotinsky. I think Jabotinsky's criticism of the Zionist establishment in general was that it was it wasn't willing to assert Jewish rights. They were, and I, you know what, when I look at the, um, the Jewish right today, 
whether it's certain political leaders in Israel or certain you know, conservative Jews in the diaspora in the United States, and I hear this idea that um, the Jews or the Israeli government is not asserting our interests enough, and therefore what can we expect from people like Bush or Obama or Clinton or Trump or whoever, because we're not asserting our rights. And I think that's, for me, maybe one of the fundamental uh, disagreements between Jabotinsky and Yair, is I think Jabotinsky kind of took this approach that there's no inherent conflict of interest, we're just not really fighting hard enough, or making a strong enough claim, or showing that we're unwilling to compromise on the things that are important to us. And if we were to, I don't know, advocate or um, lobby harder, then we'd get what we want, whereas Yair identified a conflict of interest between the British Empire and the children of Israel, saying there is no peace. Among Yair Stern's uh, many uh, innovations Mm -hmm. or discoveries or uh, uh, his unique uh, approaches, um, for instance, as you pointed out, his use of the term foreign regime, he wasn't the first to use it, but he was the first to put it into his platform and make it a big thing. Achimeyer preceded him by in Brit Abriyonim by about uh, eight years. But Brit Abriyonim had, had disappeared right, years year before Yair came around. But Yair organized a real revolution. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah but, but that was one of the points, uh, that he used foreign regime, and his mm-hmm. discussion always uh, of, of interests was another one. Uh, so here you have a, a great contrast, as you pointed out, which I'll try, to, I'll try to make even sharper, between him and Jabotinsky. In the argument that Begin had with Jabotinsky in Poland, in which... Begin stands up and talks about the need to fight to liberate and that we have to do it and we have to fight ourselves and we have to, you know. Jabotinsky says, you know, the world, we have to appeal to the world, essentially. And uh, if you don't believe in the world's conscience, then you might as well drown yourself in the local river. And Jabotinsky truly believed that. First of all, he believed in the world's conscience. And second of all... Specifically he, the Western world. Yeah. And, and he also uh, believed that without that, um, to hang your to, to, to lean on, so to speak, uh, you were doomed. And Begin and I, I write I do I do say this in um, in uh, Stern the man and his gang. I I talk about this uh, encounter between them. Begin and Stern and Eldad had no desire to drown themselves, but did not believe in the world's conscience, and rightly so, as we've learned from you know decades later about what how the world refused to in- intervene at the time. The Urgun had intelligence. Uh, operatives all through Europe. They had refugees on boats trying to get out. Stern also in the 40s, in the early 40s, before they the, the, the last boats were stopped. They knew exactly what was going on. And they knew that the British were stopping the Jews from leaving Europe. It wasn't only, the, it certainly wasn't the Germans at that time. It, and it wasn't the only, Germans wanted Jews out. Yeah. And it wasn't only the Poles, but you know, the Romanians and the, all these countries were willing to let the Jews go. And you've got the British running around saying, don't let the Jews out. And the Yagun knew this, and Stern knew this, and um, uh, they had no belief whatsoever in the world's conscience, uh, which indeed led to um, them to decide they had to fight. But Stern went even further, and he said, don't base your arguments, don't even try to argue on you know, the, ph- the philanthropy of the world, the good feeling of the world. Don't try to, to, to win them over by, by seeming like you're a poor, pitiful uh, uh, refugee. Uh, he said, what matters for countries around the world is interests. Mm-hmm. And our interests, and this, is what, this was another of his, his uh, unique 
statements, and nobody else said this at the time. Nobody, certainly not anybody in the Irgun. Our interests are diametrically opposed to the British interests. It, maybe it didn't have to be this way, you know, if history had developed differently hundreds of years earlier. But at the time, the British interests were completely opposed to Jewish interests. So there was no way you could have another rally or have another petition or have another, you know, 100 Jews in, in, or non-Jews in, in, in England saying, let's do something else that would have any effect. Right. And indeed, if, you, if now again we have, as I was researching the the Stern, the Man and the Gang, I was coming upon all of the British documents from the time. And if you, if you see what the British were saying amongst themselves, they said, you know, in the cabinet meetings, they were making quite clear, we're going to stay in Palestine long after the world war is over. We're not, we're not going to be leaving for a long time because their interest was to stay here. Th- those interests being the oil to the east, mostly the piping underground. Yeah, yeah, mostly the oil. And the Suez Canal to the west. Right. And I think there's also the just like historical prestige of ruling Jerusalem, I think that means something to world empire. It, it, I did not, I'm not disagreeing with you, yeah. but I did not encounter that in the discussions in, in the cabinet. Oil, without a doubt, yeah. and, and, and there were piping transportation. later became northern Iraq to Haifa. Like the pipes were they, going they, were, the they were essentially the taking the raw materials of the Arab peoples, and in the case of uh, Iran, uh, the the, uh, the Persians, uh, and uh, taking the raw materials out, and you know, uh, to the shores of Palestine, meaning that's and, where and, they would, and from here yeah. they would ship it further. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the Lehi actually did, in fact, identify that as a British, as, as a central British interest in our country, and that's why they bombed the Haifa oil refinery. Twice. The first time they failed, and, and again they succeeded. I would make the argument that that was probably one of the most impactful actions of the underground against the British, because once their economic, you know, once the Lehi succeeded in making the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation, it only took a couple more dead British soldiers until they said, okay, we're leaving. Meaning once there wasn't that massive incentive, that oil refinery where, where everything was, kind of, where all of the riches that they were stealing from our neighbors were being uh, processed, refined, uh, there, there was much less of an interest to fight to stay. Yeah, I think that um, the discussion that we're having is, per- I, don't, I don't know if all of your listeners are fully uh, familiar with the war of the underground, so I'm not sure that they know they exactly. Buy your book. Is there a <coughs> website where they can buy your book? I'm sorry, there isn't. But the, the, Well, let me rephrase that. They could go to the Lechi uh, Heritage uh, Association What's in Tel Aviv. Lechi.org. Uh, well, how do you spell that? L E H I period O R G period I L. Okay, and that's where they can find your book. That way they can find uh, uh, several of my books, yeah. Okay. Um, Amazon, I think, also has. Yeah, a, but we don't support Amazon. Ah, okay. So, in any case, the Lechi began as a small group of people, and I mean extremely small because they were decimated by the British and by the Yogun and by the Haganah. And what was left was a few dozen people who believed in creating a Jewish state and throwing the British out in 1941 and 42. Um, when Shamir took it over in 43, essentially, when he escaped from jail and reorganized Lehi, uh, he built an organization that was capable of fighting the British. And the Irgun, as we've already pointed out, joined in late 40s, let's say in early 44, the Irgun joined as well. So they stopped uh, shooting individual policemen who were trying to arrest them, which is really all that Lehi did in, in the early days. I mean, they did some other things, I'm generalizing. Um, but they began attacking British installations. And the Irgun had more people to put into the field, so they did this more often. 
together the Irgun and the Lehi attacked British airplanes and British air bases. And one of Lehi's, as you pointed out, most important uh, attacks on its own was against the oil refineries in Haifa. And as you pointed out, it did show the British that none of their installations in Israel was safe, and indeed all of, their, all of their economic interests in the country were going to go up in the same smoke that the oil refineries went up on because it blackened the skies for miles, for, for weeks. So, uh, yeah. Right. They had the scars to remember. Yes. Right. So you, you touched on other books you've written, and uh, you know we've spoken before about how Lefi was really just a later expression of a series of... Jewish liberation movements that existed between the Bar Kochba revolt and the Stern group. A lot of people don't know, and I think you talk about this also, and you write about this in uh, Stern, the Man and His Gang, that there were roughly a dozen or so Jewish liberation movements that existed between the Roman destruction of our civilization and our national rebirth in the last century. And we often don't speak about these movements because they failed. Like these movements essentially failed to restore Jewish independence to our land. And we remember, you know, the movements that succeed. So what do you think is important to know about these movements that kind of came in between, other than the fact that they just kind of like inspired the next and inspired the next and inspired the next until somebody actually succeeded? But is there something that we can learn? Is there something that, I don't know, like uh, David Ruveni or Shlomo Malcho or El Dadani uh, or Benjamin Ishtaveria has to teach us in terms of our situation today and how we can move forward? I think that um, not necessarily in the details because the situ- political situations through the centuries, of course, were, sure. were, were different. But I think that, that the, the, the definite message, which is the message that Lehi tried to um, uh, inculcate in its members in the year or two that after it was founded is that, and this is, this is very important I'll, I'll preface this by saying it's very important, especially today when the fight, the ideological fight uh, um, f- among Jewish youth, among uh, college youth is, is uh, so hard because everywhere you turn you get the uh, you're attacked for being a colonialist in a, in a country that belongs to someone else uh, or, or a latecomer in, in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the message that you can take away from, from all, all of these movements that you've mentioned, one or two of them, and which Lehi was based on, is that the Jewish people, having been uh, expelled from its homeland by the Roman colonialists, uh, or imperialists, let's say, um, they never ceased, never ceased, mm-hmm trying to regain their independence, their sovereignty, uh, and they never gave up their national pride, and they never gave up attempts, not only by prayer, which of course we're all familiar with, the prayers that say we want to go back to Zion, and, and all of our great-grandparents said, said these same prayers, but what, what you've just pointed out is that in every century there were uh, movements, military movements, people with... Uh, at the time, swords and bows and arrows and, and other means of fighting who tried to retake the Jewish homeland. And many of them, despite the general idea that they failed and became what we would today call false messiahs, not because they weren't messengers of God, but because they didn't succeed in giving us a permanent Jewish homeland, but they did succeed. And so you have, for instance, in the, uh, in the 6th century, you have an independent Jewish state in, 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 uh, in Persia. And in the 7th century, in the, in the 600s, you have Jerusalem liberated by a Jewish army, which is uh, under Jewish control for 14 years. 
before the Byzantines uh, come in again and, and crush it. And crush it, yes, yeah. and, and kill its leaders. Benjamin of Tiberias was the one leader, uh, for some reason or other, who was amnestied by the forces that, that uh, retook Jerusalem from us, that uh, reconquered Jerusalem. But, so this happened all the time. And then you have the, in, in Syria, uh, a, a few years after that, you have Serenus, who is, uh, who is getting Jews coming from all over Europe to join his army to retake the Jewish homeland. And uh, some of these people wanted to specifically rebuild a temple, were killed before they could do so. Others were satisfied. There was a, in Saudi Arabia, there was a Joseph de Nuas who created a Jewish kingdom in Saudi Arabia. He, was, he married the daughter of a king. The king converted to Judaism. When the king wasn't there anymore, he took over the kingdom. And he ran a Jewish independent kingdom of fighters. The tribes in Himyar, he ran an independent Jewish kingdom in what we would near Medina today. And, so, and that's where probably David Aroveni more or less came from. Right. It's very important to contextualize our story in that way that it really has been the theme of Jewish life for the last 2,000 years that we were unjustly displaced from our land and we are aspiring to return. And sometimes that took very concrete practical form, meaning these attempts to organize uh, liberation armies and come and retake our homeland by force. Uh, or to lobby, you know, the powerful nations of the world to help us in certain generations. I mean, it, it, took, it expressed itself differently throughout the generations, but I think one of the problems that has existed within our people since the Enlightenment period, since the uh, Jewish Enlightenment, specifically the Haskalah, is that we kind of shifted our identity from essentially being Palestinian refugees who, you know, from generation to generation to generation told our children the story that we are from this land, we were unjustly displaced against our will, and we are destined to return, to being Germans with a religion called Judaism, or Frenchmen with a religion called Judaism. And then, you know, and, and like Mendelssohn famously said when he was challenged in, in Germany by a Christian pastor, you know, how can you call yourself a German and a Jew? You know, you say you're loyal to Germany, but three times a day in your synagogue you pray for a return to Jerusalem. And Mendelssohn responds, well, we give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. When we pray for a return to Jerusalem, we have an obligation to say that. It's like a law that we say those words, but we don't mean it. Meaning there was this kind of like dissonance, this disconnect. We split our identity. The, the truth is this is really part of a long process of colonization that we experienced. I think the Haskalah was a very unique, special stage. But in many ways, the, the figures we're speaking about are figures who brought us back to life, who continue to inspire us and remind us that it's not just the words in a book, but it's our very existence. Not just that every wedding we say, but that there's a, a plan to actually do it, that this is something that we are fighting for, that we're aspiring towards. Like for whatever reason, the Lechi, the Stern Group, had the schut of being the ones to really force the British out. Uh, Kant, uh, the philosopher Kant, said uh, that uh, Judaism was uh, essentially uh, a dormant nationhood mm -hmm. uh, during his time. And that would have been true for the, some of the people that you've described in, in Europe at the time. What Lechi uh, showed was that uh, it was not true for all the Jewish people. And those of us like myself who learned Jewish history in, in uh, the diaspora, indeed that was the view we were given, that you know, we were expelled 2,000 years ago and then we disappeared and we just came back. Which, which we went from solid to gas to solid. Yeah. Um, and uh, the fact that 
the people who, some of the people we mentioned, Joseph Denuis, or, or you mentioned Haruveni and, and Shlomo Mocho and uh, others uh, throughout the centuries, never stopped fighting militarily with the idea of creating a political entity in Israel, in, in Eretz Israel, that would uh, essentially be the, the commonwealth that was destroyed, the state that was destroyed. So, uh, yeah. Um, Herzl was asked at one point, you know, Shlomo Mocho raised a flag in the 1500s and tried to, together with Haruveni, to uh, create a Jewish army. Um, Haruveni certainly planned that that army would help to liberate the Jewish homeland. And um, why, would, you know, why is your result going to be any different? And uh, he said, you know, Mocho didn't have trains. And Herzl knew that he could harness the same forces uh, and yet do it with um, uh, trains. In other words, he could get people here. And today, of course, we have airplanes even more so. But when Mocho, I, I just published, uh, if I may uh, uh, interject, I just published Mocho's complete writings, which have been in manuscript form. Some of them have been in manuscript form for 500 years. Wow. And um, where, where can listeners see these? Is there a way to? It's, it's only in Hebrew. It's mm-hmm. only in Hebrew. But if you if you can read Hebrew, you can go uh, to uh, the Pomeranz Bookstore in Jerusalem, which has them, uh, or the World Sephardic Library, which you can buy them online. Uh, but they are available in other uh, bookstores as well, Chavruta, people who live near Chavruta. Um, we're, having, we're having in another month, it, it will be the yard site of Shlomo Mocho, the day in which he was killed by the Inquisition. What's the date on the Hebrew calendar? On, on the Hebrew calendar, it's Hey Tevet. The event will be on actually uh, the night after. That will be Vav, Or Levav will be the night following Hey. It will be mm-hmm. the 2nd of January mm-hmm. uh, at night, Thursday night here in Jerusalem in the Chiba uh, Cultural Center. Uh, and we're having the first ever, as far as I know, memorial evening for Shlomo Mocho. Wow. And we'll discuss his view of redemption and his view of what it means to redeem the Jewish people. Uh, based so on his writings, like which have never been published. We, we can adopt an event like that. I think we can start doing uh, memorial services for Shlomo Malcho on, on campuses throughout uh, North America and maybe among certain communities here in Israel. It would be a great idea. Yeah. So Malcho goes to the Pope and, and gets the Pope's support in the middle of the Inquisition for being a... The Pope says, you know what? You can preach in synagogues. You can write books. You can talk about, about Judaism. You can comfort your people. And then he does this for a few years. And then he meets up again with Haruveni, who's trying to create a Jewish army for his kingdom in, in Arabia or something like that. And the two of them go together to the uh, Holy Roman Emperor and suggest to him that they create a Jewish Christian army to fight, uh, to protect uh, the states in, in Europe and to come to the Middle East and get to the Jewish homeland. And the, uh, Jewish, the uh, German, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Holy Roman Emperor is not as... Uh, uh, inclined to be friendly to the Jewish people as the Pope, that Pope was. Uh, he was a, uh, a, a friendly Pope, let's say. Uh, and he sent Haruveni to jail and he sent uh, Mocho to the stake. And uh, Mocho, as he's being led to the stake, is, is bound and gagged so he won't say anything. They're, they're afraid that as a Kabbalist he will say uh, some magical spell and free himself, or as a great orator he will sway the crowd that's come to see and, and get them on his side. So uh, they take it off as he's about to be uh, put into the fire. And uh, somebody comes with a, with a message from the emperor and says, uh, you know, this is, your, this is your chance. If you'll take back all of your teachings about Jewish redemption and if you'll, you know, join the Christian fold, then you'll be pardoned. 
And uh, Mocho says, uh, the only regret I have is that I was ever a, a Murano, I was ever forced to hide my Judaism and live in Christian society. And now my soul is going to go back to its God, where it was once a long time ago, and it's going to be in a far better off place than it is now. Uh, now you do what you want. And that was... Uh, that's what happened. That's what happened, yes. That's what happened. So the Lehi succeeded in driving the British out and split, essentially, you know, between the, let's say, political movement and the ideological movement. And uh, you said before that... Uh, the idea in the ear's mind was that there would be a permanent revolution, that we would achieve independence from the British, but we would continue to move on to the next goal and move on to the next goal and move on to the next goal, and we haven't done that. Uh, certainly not Lehi. And uh, do you see any of their legacy alive in Israeli society today or in the Jewish world? Um, I know that when you used to work for the uh, Jerusalem Institute of Market Studies, you know, you spoke often and, and put out papers against uh, accepting American foreign aid, against taking like U.S. military aid. Do you think if Yair was around, he would agree with you that he would say we should not take money from the United States? That's even more hypothetical than our previous hypothetical questions. I tend to think so, but yeah. it's just a, a, a guess. I would assume that being fiercely uh, committed to Jewish independence in the full meaning of the word and in the desire to uh, pursue purely uh, Hebrew interests or Jewish interests, that he would not want to be beholden to another country whose interests were not necessarily ours. Um, it doesn't, and he had the political awareness to be able to understand how foreign aid works. Again, you know, this is... Meaning that, I think, is, again, one of the things that separated Yair from a lot of his colleagues in the Edsel, and one of the reasons for the split was he actually had that analysis. Okay. And awareness of how, like, you know, systems of oppression work. I think that, that for him, if, if he could have, if he would have been able to convince, as Israelis perhaps tried to do for many years, and whether or not they were successful is, is something else, but uh, to try to find the countries around the world that had a confluence of interest with us, or build such a, a thing. He, he spoke in 1941, no, I'm sorry, 1940, he spoke about having an independent Jewish state that would be regional power. Mm-hmm. The word he used in Hebrew was ma'atzama. And the people in Lehi who were listening to him had no idea what he was talking about. They'd never heard the word ma'atzama in relation to the Jewish people before. What did it mean to be a regional power? What, if Jews were going to be a power? I mean, they weren't, they weren't even holding guns yet. He didn't see Israel as stopping with a, a being a, as a safe haven for, for refugees. He saw us as a regional power. Now, once we become a regional power, then we have things to offer to other people, mm-hmm. which was, you could say that was also part of his idea of fighting the British. If Raziel said, you know, we're gonna, we believe in the British fight against the Germans, so we're going to cooperate. Stern says, even if you come to the conclusion that you have to cooperate fighting the Germans, you need to find a way to get something for doing so. Get the British to promise you something, you anything. Have an interest. You have to have an interest for your people. So, so, so um, you know, if we, are, if we act like a regional power, then countries around the world will have common interests with us mm-hmm. when they have interests in the region. If we act like a bunch of dorks who don't believe that we belong here and who are willing to weaken ourselves for some um, hallucination of a future that doesn't exist then uh, people aren't going to want to cooperate with us because what could we possibly offer them? The Soviets supported, to the extent that they did, 
supported Jewish independence in 48 or 47 um, because Lehi was blowing up the British oil refineries, not because there was a communist party in Israel made up of Arabs and a few Jews who told the Soviets, work with us here. The Soviets had no idea who those people were. I mean, right. they were agents, so they didn't know who they were, but the Soviets wanted to know who blew up the oil refineries. Who was fighting imperialism, really? Right. right. Who, who was actually pushing imperialism out of the Middle East? Right. right. And, and who might be useful to Soviet interests down the road? Right. Right. Uh, I agree. Unfortunately, since the time of Ben-Gurion, we've had this policy of superpower patronage that we believe our existence and our survival depends on having a big, powerful friend that will protect us if we're ever in trouble. That is exilic or diaspora thought. Sure, but that has been governing our foreign policy since 1948. And, yes. uh, perhaps if uh, Yair and the fighters for the freedom of Israel were here today, they would be fighting against that mentality within Israeli society. Without a doubt. Um, you know, there were moments uh, when the sun broke through the clouds. So you have in 67, the euphoria that uh, came after the war when Israel felt like it was the third kingdom of Israel, so to speak. Or in, in more specifically in 56, when Israel conquered the Sinai, and Ben-Gurion was talking about the third kingdom of Israel, Ben-Gurion. But unfortunately, under American pressure, he then gave away all the territory that was conquered again in 67, because he gave it up in 48, we gave it up again in 56. Right. So, um, without getting any, anything real in return, uh, and uh, as you said, being beholden by aid and other things to the superpowers, uh, we couldn't stand up to them. Obviously. Uh, Zev, I love having you on the show. I could really have this conversation for hours. But I told you we would stop at a certain point, and we're way past that point. So I want to thank you again for coming on the show, being willing to do this, take time out from your busy schedule, writing, family, etc. Listeners can check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 15. This is Yudak Cohen, Brit Zone Vision Magazine, and uh, be sure to catch us next time. 